Okay, thank you everybody for joining tonight again. We are continuing our shir on tefillah, and we are up to the Birchot HaShachar. Last week we studied the Brachav Netilat Yadayim, and we discussed the history of Netilat Yadayim, and how it was originally instituted, most likely, as a bracha to ward off either Ruach Ra'ah, a spiritual evil, or even a... Uh, possibly um, just a bracha for hygiene, which turned into a bracha that was uh, designed to ward off uh, evil spirits. Whatever it was, that was our exploration last week. And this week we're continuing in the Siddur itself, at least with the order. If you open a Siddur, what is it actually going to say in it? And we're continuing with Asher Yatsar. So Asher Yatsar is, I'm going to share my screen here. Asher Yatsar is, of course, one of the most well-known um, brachos uh, that Jewish people say. Jewish people famously say a bracha for absolutely everything and even going to the bathroom. We're going to discuss tonight the um, sources of Asher Yitzhar. We're going to take a trip through the development, the history, and so much more about Asher Yitzhar. So I'm excited to begin. So let's begin just for fun. I'm going to begin with one of the my my favorite pet peeves which is these signs, these signs that they have in shuls um, for Ashe Yatsar. When I was a kid, they had this one here. And if you're listening in the audio, uh, you could switch to Spotify video, uh, Spotify video so you could watch the presentation with us along, or you could uh, move over to, to uh, YouTube if you're watching this post facto. There's also a channel called Tefillah Unpacked where you, can, where you can watch the presentation. But when I was a kid, these were the, the, the one on the left these were the Ashayatzer signs which dominated schools and shuls. And today, the Jaffa family here on East 24th Street in Flatbush, they sponsor all of these Ashayatzer signs. And they're nice, you know what I mean? They're, they're, they're there to, to, uh, give, to give people a translation of Ashayatzer or to make it pretty on the wall. And here with the kids, there's this whole fascinating uh, uh, thing where a cardboard man turns into a baby and then he turns into an old man and then he dies of a heart attack. It's fa fascinating artwork and it's lots of fun. But the, the um, message that they write on these signs, this is just, just irks me to this day, is that they put here Ashiyatsar, which is beautiful. But if you actually look at them closely and read what they say, they bring this from the Seder Hayom, from Rabbi Moshe Ibn Mechir. If a person says the bracha of Ashiyatsar with Kavana, he will never get sick. If, and he will never need a doctor nor his remedies. What a powerful, beautiful segula from Rabbi Moshe Ibn Mechir. This is a beautiful thing that a person should have kavana when he says Ashiyatsar. And if he would do so, he would never need a doctor nor his remedies. It, a powerful message, unfortunately, and the reason this is my pet peeve is that this is flatly not true. Rabbi Moshe ibn Mechir doesn't only never give such a sekula, even though he's a mikubal, he literally says the opposite. If you look it up, if you look up the 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 Sefer Seder Yom itself, read what he says. He says that a person should have kavana for this bracha because the body is so wondrous, but then he ends off, v'im ha'adam yesh shalem bideotav, if a person is intelligent, u'michalkel b'mishpat varav, and he eats in a por proper a uh, with proper portions, if a person eats properly and he's intelligent about his health, 
he will never get sick and he will never need a doctor and he will never need his remedies. So this is one of my pet peeves that they all quote the Seder Hayoma saying that the Ashiyatsar is some sort of segula. It's a magic bullet. All you got to do is say Ashiyatsar. And that's going to keep you from uh, getting sick your entire life. Now, <laughs> this is in a way a nice introduction to understanding the the beauty of Ashiyatsar itself. This is a really beautiful um, bracha. And yes, having brachais does give us spiritual, saying brachais does give us a spiritual bracha. If you say a bracha, it's going to bring you down a spiritual bracha. And Asher is one of those beautiful brachot, which has always been so meaningful to the Jewish people, how we meditate on our health and God forbid on our unhealth. And we take, we, we try not to take for granted the wonders and the mind boggling mechanics of our bodies. And furthermore, uh, many rabbis have spoken about Ashiyasar in pastoral terms, and that that's a fancy word. Pastoral is a word for when a clergy, a rabbi, a priest is acting in a in a supportive manner for somebody in distress, somebody sick, somebody suffering. If a rabbi is acting in the capacity of a chaplain, the bracha of Ashiyatzar is a great bracha to teach because it has so many beautiful messages to teach people regarding their their health and the gratitude we have to have to Hashem for when we are healthy. However, this uh, thing that Moshe ben Mechir never said, that saying Ashiyasar magically is not a pastoral quality of Ashiyasar whatsoever. Never, if you're a chaplain, never, ever tell people segulas. <laughs> Just stand there and listen. Stand there and be there. Do not tell people segulas like this, especially if they're so egregiously not true. Okay, so now let's get to Ashiyasar itself. Let's get back to its source. We're going to examine its parallels, and crucially, we're going to find its true messages before we dabble in the many trillion homiletics that have appeared in Svarim and on Ashiyatsar signs all over the world. So let's let's see the Gemara itself. Um, conveniently for us, the Gemara starts right at the top of Daf Samach Mudbet in Brachot, and on, on my screen here we have uh, the Gemara, which starts very simply. But before we start, this a person who enters a betakisei, I should point out that starting the Gemara here is 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 only gives you half the story. Because what the Gemara is doing here on Dafsama Hamud Bet is it's continuing uh, on a series of many different brachot, which I'm sorry, I'm just uh, checking the chat. Um the the Gemara here is continuing when when the Mishnah said a person who enters a city should say a special prayer formula. And when he leaves the city safely, he should say another special prayer formula. Why? Because before you enter a city, it's dangerous. It's a new city. It's There's dangers involved to get in. There's dangers involved to get out. So the Gemara, the Mishnah prescribes certain prayer formulas for, for entering a city and leaving a city. So the Gemara then brings a set of Braitot or Amorak sayings that, that also similarly, give you a bracha for when you enter something and when you leave. For example, when you enter a Beit HaMerchatz, when you leave a Beit HaMerchatz, when you enter a doctor's office, when you leave a doctor's office, when you enter the bathroom and when you leave the bathroom. So all of those cases were talking about where you enter a place of danger and then you leave a place of danger successfully and safely. It appears, for people who learn Gemaras a lot, that the Gemara is adding a shiyatza here, not because it's identical to the cases before it. It's not like entering a bathroom is considered a place of danger, simply because the Gemara often um, structures itself mnemonically or mnemotechnically in a way that's easy to memorize. Therefore, the Gemara 
is bringing a case which is similar in structure. Typically, the Brightot are structured in that order because even though it's not a perfect um, parallel to the Brightot before it, it's not a place you're entering of danger and, and, and leaving in danger. Still, it's brought in this series because it is similar enough mnemotechnically. It's similar enough in a way to memorize it. Also, as we're going to see, Ashiyatsar is first a prayer to angels, and then when you leave, it's a prayer to God. It's not both a prayer to God. So we're going. We're, we, this is just uh, something I'm pointing out about the structure because the structure of Ashiyatsar here is a little awkward in the in the in the setting of the Gemara. It's just a little awkward and out of place. Some scholars wanted to read this a little strangely that the whole bracha of Ashiyatsar is a threshold experience. Like in, in anthropology, there's a threshold ritual, a transition ritual, because they felt like they were going into a place of danger. I don't buy into that simply because I have experience learning enough Gemaras that I don't just simply don't see that kind of uh, transition ritual or, uh, you know, anxiety ritual that that they're seeing. But let's, that's that's all, of, everything you're going to see before the staff, if you, if you would have turned the page to Sama Hamad Aleph. Conveniently for us, this page here is very simple. So let's read the Gemara together. Omar, Right? So he's speaking to his ministering angels that accompany him. Accompany him. The Gemara understands that each person has guardian angels. This is something the Gemara takes for granted, that each person has two accompanying guardian angels. This comes from a Gemara in Tainus, where the Gemara says, Essentially that every person has two um, angels that accompany him or guard him. And when he dies, the person goes to heaven and they report everything he did. And when they're when he's on earth, they also they also guard him. So each person has two guardian angels. What does he have to do before he goes into the bathroom? He has to say, "I'm sorry, angels, but um, you can't come into the bathroom. It's, it's disrespectful for you to come into the bathroom with me." So he says, "Um, Let me treat you with respect, O honorable ones, kedoshim, holy ones, mishartel, yon, those who service the apai, tenu kavod, give honor leloke Israel to the God of Israel, herfu me many." Uh, uh, take leave of me until I go in and I do my business. And I will return to you. Amar Abaye, Abaye responds to this. A person shouldn't say this. Why? Because it sounds like it sounds like he's taking leave of them and they're going to leave him and not and not come back. Rather, a person should say a different formula. Wait for me, wait for me, until I come in and leave, because this is what humans have to do. Then the Gemara continues, what does a person say when he leaves? What should he finish the bracha with? Amr of Rav, Rav, the one of the first century Amoraim says, um, Amar Rav, I'm sorry, I'm losing it. Rofei Cholim, Amar Shmuel, Shmuel said a different formula. Uh, he said, Kashavinu Abba Lukuli Alma Katsiri, you Abba Rich are making everybody sick. El Rofei Cholbasar, you should instead, instead end the bracha, Baruch Hashem Rofei Cholbasar. Rav Sheshet Amar, Rav Sheshet said, Mafli Sot, the person should say Mafli Sot. And therefore, Amar of Papa, Rav Papa says, let's paskin like both Shmuel and Rav Sheshet. Amar of Papa, Hilkach Nemininu Lutarbayo Rofei Cholbasar, Mafli Sot. This is the source, this is the Gemara for how you say uh, Asher Yatsar. First, Rav said that the closing should be um, Rofei uh, what was it? I'm sorry. 
Rofei Cholim, Shmuel says, no, let's not say Rofei Cholim, let's say Rofei Cholbasar, let's not call everybody sick. And then uh, Rav Sheshis added Mafli Lasot, and therefore we say both. This is the, the Gemara that we have to see. Now, I'm going to take this Gemara step by step. We're first going to discuss the first part, the part about the angels, and then we're going to discuss the Ashiyatzar part. Okay, so first let's discuss the angel part. So this Gemara takes for granted that everybody has two guardian angels that accompany him uh, wherever he goes. And again, as I said, it comes from this Gemara in Tainus, and it comes from many Midrashim, where the where it's a an understanding in Chazal that every human being, when he walks through earth, has these two accompanying angels. We see this idea brought down much later also in the Kabbalistic circles when they created things like the Shalom Aleichem on Shabbos night. Um, this is from another Gemara, which talks about when a person goes home on Friday night, he has these two angels that accompany him. So we see this idea in Chazal that people have ministering angels that follow them wherever they go. Now, today, nobody says this. But if you look, look in the early Paiskim, if you look in in the early Sidurim, of Amram Gaon, of Sadia Gaon, the Rif, the Rambam, the Tor, the Orchot Chaim, they all bring a version of this. What's the version they bring? They bring as if this is, uh, at least the Sadia Gaon brings this as, as if this is normative practice and as if everybody does this in the Middle Ages. Um, and the Rambam brings it here as well. I'm just going to read it on the screen. Kodem Shekanesit Chabedu Mechubadim Kedoshim Eshartei Alyon. We have a hybrid um, formula, which is said as a mixture of the Brisa and Abaye, and where the you tell them, yes, uh, uh, respectfully, oh, honorable ones, please uh, watch me and 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 stay at my side to help me and wait for me until I come until I come out of the bathroom. Now, this group of Paiskim covers for us a wide geographical area. We have Egypt from Sadiagon and the Rambam. We have Spain. We have Provence from the Orchot Chaim. We have Ashkenaz with the Tor and the Rush. It seems that in the Middle Ages, at least halachically speaking, um, this was the normative, this was the, the practice, the legal practice. This was halacha. People had to do this before going into the bathroom and people did. The issue is that not always does what's in the Paiskim or in the, uh, the halachic texts always re portray reality, not always what it says in the book, that is it what everybody actually does. For example, if you look in the Orchot Chaim, he doesn't bring this tefillah by Birchot HaShachar. He only brings it much later in a discussion next to tefillah Taderech. So you wonder, even if this was in the post scheme, you actually wonder if people practically were doing this. If you fast forward um, a few hundred years to the 14th century, we have the Abu Durham citing the Rivash that essentially people didn't do this anymore. The Abu Durham was in Spain, the Rivash was Spanish, Algerian, and they said they, that simply people did not have the Minhag to do this anymore. The Rivash gives a reason, and I'm pretty sure this is the Rivash. Nobody has actually uh, uh, said this for sure, but the Rivash, the, the Abu Durham says, um, Reish Beis Shin. So I, most scholars assume that's Rivash, but I'm not clear exactly who he's quoting. And he says that the reason a person shouldn't do this is because why shouldn't a person say this formula? Why shouldn't he take leave of the angels? He shouldn't do it because it's merci ki yuhara. It looks arrogant. It looks as if you're a holy person. Only holy people who can be sure that they have malachim escorting them around all day should say this. But regular people who might not have malachim escorting them around all day uh, should not say this formula. So the question is exactly 
like what changed? Were people originally, was this a change that we're seeing in the 14th century? Or is it that people just never really said it? If you look to the sources, if you look back to Mamare Chazal, um, originally in the earlier uh, texts of Chazal, in Mishnah, in early Braisais, in Midra, early Midrashim, the Tanoim rarely speak about Malachim in positive terms. They typically downplay the role that Malachim have in our theology. For example, we say, right? We say in, in, in Haggadah Shal Pesach. The Tanoim in the early texts don't really talk so much about Malachim. It seems that theologically they want to downplay the role that Malachim have. And this, this there was a lot of uh, an analysis uh, of this uh, history done by somebody named Mika Ahuvia from, I think, the University of Michigan. She did a lot of work on tracing the attitudes in Chazal about the about Malachim. And but later in the time of the Amorim, we find that the Chachamim seemed to take for effect, take for granted that angels were a part of everyday life. And they approach it a lot more seriously. And we cannot say, just looking at medieval writings, we can't say that in the medieval times people took angels any less seriously, uh, especially with the Christians getting very into angelology at a certain point. You can't say that Jews were taking uh, angelology or the study of angels not so seriously. So it's unclear to me why, if Chazal takes take this bracha seriously, at least in the Gemara, if, if the Chazal, if, if the Chachamim take this bracha seriously, why did the um why did the bracha fade into obscurity um and that is that is a uh, mika huvia so one theory that we could that we could um suggest is that it just got disused out of ignorance or laziness people were either ignorant of the bracha or they got lazy or the reverse happened not that people stopped caring about malachim but people cared too much about malachim and that people began to think that malachim were so transcendent malachim were so holy angels were such a holy thing that it's impossible that low uh mortal men who were not exceptionally holy could have two two administering angels or two guardian angels with him at all times and therefore, people were refraining from saying it. Mind you, you cannot say that people stopped saying it for the reason the Rivash said, because the Rivash is saying no one should say it because it looks arrogant. But you can't say people stopped saying it be because no one's, you can't say no one said it because no one says it besides Sadiqim, right? That's circular logic. You can't take the Rivash for a reason why people aren't saying it but rather why people, uh, a reason why people shouldn't say it. So he's not saying, he's not giving an ideological reason. He's rather giving a recommendation. And the Rivash is saying, please don't say it in the 14th century in Spain. And for some reason, by the Middle Ages, people stopped saying it. And the Paiskim today, generally speaking, say that one should not, um, one does not have to say this formula. And this is a good example of what I was speaking about earlier in the sense that, that, um, I spoke about this a few shiurim ago. Not every tefillah that we find in the Gemara becomes part of halacha. Not every tefillah that is in the Gemara becomes something that everybody says. So we have to analyze not just the bracha itself, but also attitudes and history and see what it is that, um, what it, we have to see what it is behind this bracha and the, the wide gamut uh, of context around this bracha that makes it, that gives it survivability, not simply looking at the Gemara itself and saying, this is the rule, this is the law, and this is what's going to happen, because that that doesn't always pan out. We have to look at the bracha, the bracha in context uh, as well.
All right. So one exception to this is very interesting. Everybody knows, not everybody, but most people know that the, the, the author of the Shulchan Aruch, um, Rabbi Yosef Karo, famously had visions from an angel that he called the Magid. And there's a sefer called Magid Meshar, which he wrote, which is his own notes with his discussions of this angel, which would give him visions and teach him Torah. It's called the Sefer Magid Meisharim. In Parshas Matot Mase, where, where the angel is giving him Kabbalistic explanations of the parasha, Matot Mase, the angel mentions to him uh, personally that he, that he or Yosef Karo should be very careful to only think in learning, to never speak words that are not essential for him to speak. And that we, if you do this, we, that I, the, the Magid, will accompany you wherever you go. Me and my legions will accompany you wherever you go, uh, besides for the bathroom. And before you go into the bathroom, let me just admit Ariel. Um, and before you go into the bathroom, make sure to say Badim. So we do see that that for uh, that at least the Rabbi Yosef Cairo believed that he himself should be saying uh, Badim, which is you know he doesn't bring it in Shulchan Aruch that a person should say it, but he himself clearly was saying this prayer formula. So that's one of the last pieces of evidence we have for somebody saying in history. There was a rabbi also named, uh, a conservative rabbi, I should say, Rabbi Dan Ornstein, who did who did some work on, uh, some of the only work on Asher Yatsar. And he believes that this idea of angels shouldn't die. He believes that in a pastoral sense, if one is functioning as a as a clergy, as a, as a chaplain, or as a, in some form of rabbinical pastoral sense, that this could be very useful. Still teaching the Sishabdu Mechubadim thing, at least academic, not academically, but pastorally, teaching this to people and giving them the encouragement that there are guardian angels can be very useful. And we shouldn't just discard it. We shouldn't just say, these are old attitudes. People used to believe in angels. It can be very useful for people who are in suffering, people who are in pain or people who are in distress. It can be very useful to speak to them in this sense that they do have guardian angels, so to speak, that were sent by Hashem to watch over them. And there's an imminent presence with instruments of Hashem there to guard over him. So he says... His point is, after after reviewing Ashiyatzar his uh, and and going through the history of Ashiyatzar, his point is, we shouldn't disregard it. Even if no one says this formula anymore, don't forget about this formula. This formula of Ishabdu Mukhubadi Yon is still something that we should remember and take seriously. Let us move on. Okay, so let's move on to Ashiyatzar. So now Ashiyatzar, the language that we saw was Ubarabo Nikavim Nikavim Chalulim Chalulim. Right? As we have spoken pre previously, a bracha doesn't come magically into existence. Um, it's not just one fine day the Gemara wakes up and says, here's Ashi, this is a bracha, Ashiyatzer, I'm writing it, I'm making this up, and everybody should say this bracha. Typically, uh, a bracha is born out of a context of creativity. There's multiple social groups of rabbis and other people creating pray, uh, prayer formulas for various things. And typically, the most successful of these prayers are the ones that become canon. As we can see from the history of the Gemara itself that we just saw previously, we can see from that Gemara that the, the bracha was going through an area of development from the first, from the generation of the first Amoraim from Rav and Shmuel, all the way down to the fourth generation with Rav Papa. So even in the Amoraic period, the girsa, the nusach of, of, um, 
Ashiyatzer was not yet set in stone. So clearly, if from the first to the fourth generation of Amoraim, Ashiyatzer was still fluid, clearly it had not yet received its final form in the time of the Tanayim. And in truth, we don't see any reference to the Brach of Ashiyatzer in the works of the Tanayim. However, we do see parallel forms. We do see similar wording to this uh, idea of Ashiyatzar in the early Tanaim. And here's the most famous example. This is a Pasuk in Yecheskel Chavches, where Yecheskel is Hanavi, Ezekiel 28. Um, Yecheskel is chastising the Prince of Tyre, Negid Sur, for, uh, for leaving, for calling himself Hori, calling himself a god, and dismissing the supremacy of HaKadosh Baruch Hu. So, I'm just going to read from the JPS translation here, which avoids the words we're actually trying to, to translate. You were in Aden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your adornment. Carnelian, chrysolite, and amethyst. Beryl, lapis, lazuli, and jasper, if I'm pronouncing those correctly. Sapphire, turquoise, and emerald, and gold beautifully wrought for you. In other words, you lived on, you were trying, you, the Prince of Tyre, were trying to live on high. Mind for you prepared the day you were created. But the JPS is so unsure of what um, tupecha un kavecha means that they simply just, try to skip over it. However, in the Targum, our Mesorah, for what it means, comes from the Targum. And Targum Yonasan ben Uziel gives us the fo following uh, explanation. He says, Biski, uh, okay, I don't want to do all of this, but let's go into Kol Ilein, I'm going to take my mouse here and point. Kol Ilein Avidat Tikuncha Bechen, all of these were done for you. Bechen, Ra'em Libach, therefore you became Hori. Biram La Istakalt Bifigrach, because you didn't look at your body a corpse, which is essentially a corpse. The avid, which is made halalin unkavin, which is made with with hollows and cavities. The inun sarchan, which you require. The laafshar lach detitkayem lolahon, for which you cannot survive without. From the day which we were created, a very similar language to what we have in Ashiyasar. Nekavim nekavim halim halim, and we say eifshar lekem lefanecha. If it weren't for these nekavim and chalulim, it would be impossible for us to stand before Hashem. So the Targum Yonasan is uh was undergoing development probably between the first and the second centuries. The Gemara in Megillah tells us that Targum that the Targum on Nach was written by Yonatan ben Uziel, who's a Talmud of Hillel. He's a first gen, in other words, a first generation Tana. We don't have any reason really to doubt this. Um, attribution of the Gemara simply because if it's coming from the first, if if we can tell uh, academically for sure that it's coming from this the 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 first century, at least the the second century or first century, then we should have no reason to doubt the historicity of the Gemara when the Gemara tells us that that Ravianus and Benuziel is from uh, was the one who wrote the Targum on Nach. But we do know for sure that this Targum of Yonas and Benuziel was corrupted later in Babel. Originally, it was written in pristine JPA, Jewish Palestinian Aramaic. Later, it got corrupted with an with a Babylonian Aramaic, and therefore we have it in its present form, which has corruptions, deletions, and additions. Regardless, this targum to to leave the academic part of, aside is shows us that the Tanoim used this type of language without referencing Ashriyatzar uh, before the 
third century where we have Rav and Shmuel discussing Ashiyatzer. So this form of language of Nekavim, Nekavim, Chalulim, Chalulim might have been a figure of speech. And the say the might have also been a figure of speech already present in the time of the Tanaim. So that's a very beautiful thing to see that's so early. Now, um, just for fun, I will show you these uh, magic bowls. This is something you could find online if you want. If you want to, if you want to Google this yourself, the magic incantation bowls from from Babylonia. Why am I showing you this? Well, for two reasons, uh, mostly for fun, but for two other reasons. First of all, uh, there was a there's an excavation in a place in southern Iraq called Nippur, which had a Jewish town. They found hundreds and thousands, uh, uh, hundreds really, but thousands, hundreds of Hebrew ones, but thousands of incantation bowls in the settlement. Many of them written in Hebrew, and these um, incantation really uh, these incantation bowls really should be called um, uh, maybe goodwill bowls. These are are eating bowls, which are used as like amulets. And when scholars of religion speak about magic or witchcraft or sorcery, they don't really use those words because those words pass judgment. They're thick concepts. If you say the word miracle, um, that 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 assigns a value to something. Like if you say uh, Moshe turned the stick into a snake and you say that's a miracle, you could also say that it's witchcraft or sorcery, right? If you use different words in English, that gives it a completely different judgment. So when they want to say a word which leaves the judgment out of it, scholars of religion use a word called thaumaturgy or thaumaturgical. And therefore, when discussing bowls like this, you could say they have a thaumaturgical quality, uh, so to speak. Why? Because a lot of these bowls are written to, to, to ward off the evil eye. A lot of these bowls are written to uh, prevent sorcerers and magicians from having any effect on you. And uh, honestly, the Rabbanim weren't very, very much a fan of these kinds of amulets. Uh, the, the Jews who lived in southern Iraq were not the biggest Tamil Chachamim, but um, <laughs> this is what they used to do. And it's hysterical because it's so much fun. These drawings look like they were made by a kid. This is supposed to be a demon in the middle, which is, it's really like a schoolgirl making these little pictures of angels and demons. Um, what's interesting about these bowls is that they show us two things. They show us, number one, in the third century, the Jews in uh, in uh, Babylonia, or in whatever you want to call it, in 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 Babel, thought about angels as being part of their everyday life. Because in many of these Hebrew incantations, they will speak to um, and call to the schus of, of angels to protect them. And as we spoke about earlier, they have in them the, um, they have in them, what should I say? Uh, those the, the as we spoke about earlier, they have in the formula a a notice that that uh, that we consider angels to be accompanying us all the time. The second reason I'm bringing you these bowls is because on some of these incantation bowls, uh, Professor Ahuvia, I think her name is, she looked at hundreds of these bowls to find that besides in her in her um, her research on angels, that a lot of these bowls have quotations from the Mishnah and from and from Rabbanim, but more so. Many of them cite Targum Yonis and Ben Uziel. And what's fascinating about that is that it shows us that in the third century, Targum Yonis and Ben Uziel was seen as an ancient and important text. So clearly everybody in Bavel was familiar with Targum Yonis and Ben Uziel. And if there was a text in Targum Yonis and Ben Uziel, it would have gotten used. That's why I'm showing you these balls to show you two aspects of Ashiyatzar. First of all, they believed angels were part of their everyday life. Second of all, Targum Yonis and Ben Uziel was well known, even among people who were like this, people who were writing Kamea and Amulet Balls, they still knew 
So clearly something like that targum would have had an effect on a bracha that was said later. The next thing we should look at, um, uh, uh, non-archaeological, is the is the text of Rashis Rabbah in the right in the beginning of Rashis Rabbah. This is another parallel text that's very similar to the forms that we have in Ashiyatzar. Our Gersa of Ashiyatzar is typically Nekavim, Nekavim, Chalulim, Chalulim. But there were also other Nuschaot, especially among the Temanim, which was Nekavim, Nekavim, Nechilim, Nechilim. Which is the same, honestly, the same word. And it says here in the Medrash, Bereshis Baral Eikim, Rabbi Tanhuma, Pasach, Rabbi Bechuba opened in being Dairish the Pasach of Bereshis. Kigadal Ata Ve'aisein Eflois, Amar Bitanchum Hanoida Zeh, Im Yebo Nekev Kechod Shal Machat, Kol Rucho Yotzei Menu. If you have this sack of air or gas or liquid, if you take this kind of a leather sack and you blow it up with air or liquid and you poke a hole in it, all of the air would come out. A person is made of many different hollow tubes, and cavities, and never does his soul depart from him, or his breath. Only Hashem. The the Midrash is saying that that um, that the, the the wonders of creation include the creation of man and how incredible it is that a Baruch Hu could create a human where the soul rests within him. And this um, link, this medrash suggests to us very strongly that in the time of at least the second or third generation Tanoim, these languages of Nikavim, Nikavim, Chalulim, Chalulim was a turn of phrase that was very popular and it's only natural that it would have come into um, Ashiyatzar. So when one last thing here is the Gemara Brachist of Chavdal This is in the time of the Moraim. We have, if a person passes Gaz in the middle of davening, uh, here we have a person who needs to pass wind. A person who is standing and he's praying Shmon Esrei and he needs to pass wind. He backs up four, uh, four cubits and he passes wind. And he waits until he's done. And he, he starts praying again. But before he prays, he says this short formula. Master of the universe. It is no well known before you. Uh, God, you have created us with many cavities and hollows. It is well known before you our shame and our and our uh, humiliation in our lives. And when we die, that we are that in our in our uh, death we are also maggot and worm. So we see that in the time of the Amaraim this kind of formula was also being transplanted to prayer, and therefore it's clear that Ashiyatzar was one of the uh, benefactors, uh, not benefactors, um, one of the receivers of this donation. I'm trying to look for the English word of that, for that, and it's just escaping my mind. One of the recipients of this uh, turn of phrase, of this of this type of um, rabbinic language. Okay. So when did this become part of, when did Ashiyatzar become a part of Birchus HaShachar? As far as we understand, um, Ashiyatzar is simply a prayer which you say when you leave the bathroom. You don't, it doesn't necessarily have to be in the beginning of a Siddur. So how did it turn up in the beginning of every single Siddur that you have? Let's just look at that history for a second. So if you look at all the early Paiskim, all the way as far back as of Sadian or Amram, they mention that people have this um, tendency to want to say all the brachot of Birkot HaShachar from Alantilatidayim all the way until Ma'avir Chevlei Sheina. They want to do them all in a series at shul. People don't seem to want to do it at home as they as they girdle their belt as they do Netilatidayim. 
Why? It's not clear. It seems to have been a cultural thing. Perhaps in some people's houses, uh, when they woke up in the morning, not everybody was appropriately dressed. They didn't want to say brachas at home. Perhaps in some cultures, people felt like prayer was only for shul. The private prayers weren't exactly, uh, I don't know, in vogue. But apparently in some places, instead of uh, doing it at shul, people would do the berchos hashachar, uh, 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 sorry, at home, people would do the berchos hashachar at shul. This seems to be a Svardi ashkenaz split. Apparently in Svarad, uh, people would do it at home. In Ashkenaz, people would do it at shul. Some sort of cultural difference. In Egypt or, and, and, and Bavel of Sadegon reports that there were a minority of people who also wanted to do this uh, at shul, and we don't protest. Okay, but what does that tell us about the history? That tells us that if people were going to wait until they got to shul, then this all became part of the same series. So you would wake up in the morning, you would wash your hands for Nitilati Daim, go to uh, go you would go to the bathroom, you'd wash your hands Nitilati Daim and Ashiats for, for Nitilati Daim and Ashiats, but you wouldn't say on Nitilati Daim or Ashiats because you would want, would want to wait till you get to Shul. So because so many people waited until they got to Shul to say those brachos, therefore they became considered as a part of the morning blessings, even though Ashiatsar itself is not technically a morning blessing. One cannot say Ashiatsar if he didn't go to the bathroom in the morning. And the Paiskim are adamant. Like the Ramah says, a person should not say it twice. You can't just say it at home when you're saying, uh, when you use the bathroom and then say it again over in shul just for liturgical purposes. You can't. Ashiatzer is intrinsically tied to using the bathroom. So it seems, um, historically speaking, that for various cultural reasons, uh, Ashiatzer became a part of the liturgy series of the Berchot HaShachar, and it's stuck there in the beginning of the Siddur ever since. Now let's examine the internal problems of Ashiyatsa are just for a few minutes and then we will be relieved. So as I said, Ashiyatsa is a kind of an awkward bracha to understand because externally it's a little awkward, um, both where it's put in Talmud Bavli, it's put in kind of an awkward series, but it's also, I'm sorry, it is also awkward internally. It is awkward in the sense that there's a lot of internal contradictions inside Ashiyatzar that the Mepharshim like plumbing. They like plumbing the depths of Ashiyatzar. And one of those contradictions is that we know in Bereshus, uh, HaKadosh Baruch who created man, uh, and there's two episodes of creation. In one of them it says, And then it says, I'm, I'm, I should have pulled up the language. I'm sorry, it's it's blanking on me because my, my brain is elsewhere. But First comes the episode of Bria, and then comes the episode of Yitzira. And this is true in linguistic terms as well. First comes a full creation, right? A creation of form, and then comes a creation of, uh, sorry, creation of matter, and then comes Yitzira, which is a form to that matter. So why is it that Ashiyatzar begins, Ashiyatzar ta'adam b'chokhmah uvaravo nekavim? It should be Ashabara ta'adam b'chokhmah, who created man with wisdom, and then Yatzar, and then he formed him with uh, hollows and tubes and cavities. Why is it backwards? So for the purposes of tonight's year, there's, I brought three possibilities. I know there are more, but I don't want to get into any strict homiletics for tonight. The first possibility is that it's not deliberate and that it's simply a coincidence. And why am I saying that? I know it's a little bit out of touch, but the truth is that if you look in the Talmud Yushalmi, in the Gemara and Brachas, uh, it's uh, Perak Tes, Halacha uh, In the standard editions of Talmud Yerushalmi, it just says, Baruch HaShayatzar Sa'adam. It doesn't give the entire Girsa. But in the Vatican um, 
the Ksav Yad Romi, as they call it in the in the Gemaras, in the Vatican edition, a Vatican Hebrew number 133, which I'm showing here on the screen, a facsimile of this Vatican edition, it says the full girsa of Ashiyatzar. And what's the girsa? In other words, a very similar language, but not as deliberate. And I should just explain, first of all, and you made him, right? Cavities, halulim, halulim, hollows. Kininiot is a very rare word. I didn't know what it meant. I looked it up in a, in a fancy Hebrew, uh, academic Hebrew dictionary, and they said kininiot means coils. So apparently it's some, some reference to the large intestine. And it says at the end, the person will not be able to live if one of them opened their closed. Fascinating idea. But here, clearly, it doesn't say Yetzirah and Bria. It just says Yetzirah and Asiya. So perhaps if the Yushami wasn't being deliberate in its terminology, maybe the, the Bavli wasn't either being deliberate in its terminology and it, it technically is interchangeable. I'm not sure. I, I, I don't really subscribe to this view, but it is a possibility. The second possibility is that it's just a figure of speech. We know the Pasuk says, Yotzer or uvore choshech um, ose shalom ubere uh, tovar uh, ubore ra, I believe. Right. So the Pasuk says that Hashem was Yotzer or ubore choshech. So clearly in biblical Hebrew, we first put Yetzira before Bria. And therefore, here too in the Bracha, we put Yetzira before Bria. I don't find that satisfactory enough. I don't really like saying, oh, this is just the way they do it in Lashon HaKodesh. So what I found, the most satisfying answer I found was in the, the Siddur HaGrub in Nigel It's a Kabbalistic Siddur. And over there, the Gras Talmidim explain what he's trying to say. And he basically uh, compares Asher Yatzar to, to Yotzer Ar, the Bracha of Yotzer Ar. And he says the order over there of Yotzer Ar Boreh is deliberate because for Kabbalistic, for Kabbalistic reasons, you're first discussing the Olam HaYetzirah from which the Olam Hasia comes. And then, then after that, you're going to describe the Olam Habria, which is uh, included in the world of Yitzira under it and included in the world of Asiya under it. In other words, uh, technically speaking, Ashiyatar comes from Chochmah of Asiya, and then and then you rise up into Yitzira and then you rise up into Bria. So there's a Kabbalistic reason for this. Is what, In other words, what he's trying to say is that there's a Kabbalistic reason for this. And he also mentions why do we say Yotzer R that you formed light? He says, because light can take up space. At least, uh, you know, light has a form of, uh, represents spiritual energy that can take space. Choshech represents spiritual energy that doesn't take space. Rather, it absorbs light, like dark matter does in, in, in quantum physics, that it could, that uh, Choshech can, can contain and, and uh, withhold light. So he says, we say Yotzer R because we have to form light since it has a form of matter to it. It's a type of matter. But when we come to Choshech, which doesn't have any form, therefore you have to use the word of Bria. Bria is specific to things which cannot have a form. That's what the word Bria is used for. All right. So this lends perfectly into the next contradiction within Ashiyatzar, which is Nekavim, Nekavim, Chalulim, Chalulim. And all the Mepharshim asked, how could you say you're being, uh, you're creating uh, Nikavim, you can't create a hole. A hole is a privation. It's a lack of thing. You can't create a hole. So many of the Mepharshim say, no, 
that's exactly what the word Bria is for. The word Bria is for something that has no form, something which you create out of nothing. Bria is the correct word for when you're creating a hole. Others say, well, it could mean that you're creating the, the tube and the cavity itself, what's surrounding it. It's not such a, a big kasha that's borrowed by Nekavim Nekavim. The Anaf Yosef goes so far to, to think this is such a strong kasha that he says, no, it might not be Barabo Nekavim Nekavim. It's Borebo. Bore is from a Pasuki Nechesko, means to pierce. And he pierced into a person um, uh, uh, hollows and tubes, which I find a little bit far-fetched, but it's still a very interesting reading uh, of the of the uh, of the bracha. Okay, the next thing of the bracha, which is very famous, is afilu sha'achat. Everyone knows it says ef afilu sha'achat. So this would um, this would imply afilu sha'achat would imply that if any one of these hollows or tubes got punctured, a person wouldn't be able to survive even a moment. The commentators and even the place can jump. They're like, what is going on? How could the bracha say such a thing that a person cannot survive even a moment? We have, we, you have a nose and a mouth and you're surviving and a person who gets a bullet shot can still survive. A person who gets stabbed can still survive. Well, what do you mean the person can't survive for a moment? So some people answer that, of course, um, it doesn't mean a moment. It means even for a significant amount of time. It means like, you know, if a person had a, a, a bullet through, through their head, it would be impossible for them to live uh, for very long. It, that's the idea. It doesn't mean it literally. That's what some say. Some say that it's Kabbalistic, that it means that really the whole Ashiyatzar is referring to your spiritual body, the spiritual body, which is on top of the physical body. And if one of those spiritual Ramachivarim or Shasagidim are penetrated or broken, it would be impossible for a person to live and he would immediately perish. And some go so far as to say that the entire Ashiyatar is not talking about a living person. It's talking about a fetus in the in the, in, the, in the womb of a mother. If a fetus was exposed for even a second, it would die. I, I, I don't really know how to reconcile this with reality because we don't say Ashiyatar when a woman gives birth. We say Ashiyatar when we leave the bathroom. So it's incredible how many of the Rishayinim bring this shot that it's talking about an uber bimei imai. I never really understood it, but it's it's definitely worthy of investigation if the Rishayinim bring it. Lastly, the bracha ends with and God is wondrous in his creations. The Ramah says in Simen Vav that this is the wonder that the neshama stays inside the guf. Um, where, where does the Ramah get this from? Clearly, he gets this from the medrash that we said earlier about man nodze, right? The medrash said, hey, you take this leather balloon, you take this balloon, you pierce a hole into it, and all the air goes out. But a person, he has many holes in him, and his ruach never leaves him. This is a really interesting thing philosophically, because anybody here who likes philosophy will be aware of the mind-body problem. The mind-body problem was a problem first thought uh, developed in the 1600s by René Descartes and really by his critics, where Descartes came along and said that consciousness and and um, the body are made of different things and they're completely incompatible. The characteristics of bodies and matter, of course, has spatial dimensions. They have, uh, they're linear. They can be measured right to left. They can occupy space. And those are the characteristics of things that are that are physical. But the mind, its only characteristic is it's conscious. That's the only characteristic of a mind. You can't say that it has space, that it takes up space and it, and it, and it goes and it, and it has any uh, a form or, or matter to it. And therefore, these are completely separate things with separate characteristics. His critics came along and said, how could you say that? How could you say that the mind is completely detached from the body? If you're going to say that the mind affects the body, the mind must have extension over the body. So... If the mind has some sort of extension over the body, it must interact with the body, and therefore it has must have some physical form to it. So 
the, the mind body problem isn't that, that just that the mind and body are so separate is that they are separate in a way that makes interaction between them impossible. And therefore the, the mind body problem is something that was conjured up first by philosophers in the 1600s. And it's a problem which nobody has fully resolved yet. How could consciousness be a part of you? How could consciousness be, or be inside your body? If really the mind or the experience of being consciousness conscious is not really bound uh, to a body. This has some parallels in early philosophy of the soul being immortal, but never did earlier philosophers really discuss how does the soul um, uh, stay with the body? This medrash seems to touch on this idea that the soul stays in the body for the first time in, in theology, at least. This medrash, thousands of years, uh, at least uh, uh, roughly 1600 years earlier, does discuss this problem that it is a pele that the ruach of a person could stay in this body. Now, the mushal of the medrash is strange because the the if the nimshal might be different, but the mushal does give a physical a discussion where you the ear the air you know escapes. So, to a person has a physical body with so many holes, and his ruach or his air or his neshama never escapes. So clearly, there is some kind of idea. In the in the medrash, that the Tanoim believe that the soul does interact in the physical world within physical space. So this mafli lasois is a lot of food for thought. I encourage everybody to open a siddur that has mafarshim like the the itzar atfilais or the mesifta siddur, and to review all the beautiful uh, pirushim on Ashiyatzar. Also, as well to recognize how many beautiful message, how beautiful the message is of Ashiyatzar that we have these internal innards, these internal organs that we go about our typical day without thinking much. And we're so lucky, healthy people are so lucky to not have to think about the mind boggling complexity of the human body. It is only when people are sick that they first come to that loneliness and they come to that terror and the, the rewriting of their entire narrative when they have to rewrite who they are because they now have this illness and disease and they have to come with a new terms to, to how they deal personally with their body, how they relate to themselves and how they relate to their body and how they relate to health um, as well. So even if Moshe bin Mechir doesn't tell you that it's a segula, uh, to, uh, never said that it's a segula for staying healthy, clearly not taking your health for granted is a terrific exercise when we say Ashriyatzar. So thank you everybody for your time, for your attention, and Bezrat Hashem, we will... Um, continue next week with our discussion of Elokai Neshama. So I will pause the recording.